Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. It's the podcast where you control the conversation right here on the critically acclaimed network where we live. We live in the airwaves. Yeah. I'm on a Mexican radio. Whoa. <laughs> I love that song, by the way. It's not not even a big hit, but I love it. No. Uh, look, anyway. look, up, look up Wall of Voodoo sometime. Weird thing. Anyway, my name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic, and everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. Ooh. And everybody calls me Whitney. Or Dad. <laughs> you have one person who calls you Look, Dad. The person I'm spending the most time with these days calls me Daddy. Mm-hmm. It's your son. It's my son. So we're clear. Yeah. 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 Uh, how how is your son? How's he handling everything right now? He's handling it okay. He has up days and down days. He gets really frustrated with being indoors. Sometimes he gets a little frustrated with having to go outdoors. Yeah. I, I want to take him on a one walk, you know, outdoors at least once a day. Yeah. Uh, and today we played a wonderful game. Hmm. Uh, I was Bowser. From the Super Mario Brothers games. I, I got it. He yeah. was Bowser Jr. Are there other Bowsers that I could have confused that with? I, I suppose not. Okay, just checking. Just, I, I remember before Super Mario Brothers, Bowser was like the name you'd give a bulldog. Well, I remember back when he was King Koopa. I don't know when he lost his title. When they changed it. Well, if you looked in the instructions booklet, it was Bowser. It was always Bowser? Was always well, a, who was King, King Koopa? There is no King Koopa. King well, Koopa was like a nickname, I think. Like, Bowser was king of the Koopas, and I think that just got mixed up. So by the time the movie came out, it was King Koopa. And King Koopa's cool cartoons from, I think, the same year. Uh, look that one up if you want a real obscurity. Boy. But yeah, we, we went on a walk with some chalk, and we uh, paint, we drew on the on sidewalk squares all around our neighborhood trap doors for Mario to fall into. <laughs> that, that, that was our activity today, so it's that was fun. really fun. Mm. All right, well, listen, uh, this is the podcast where you control the conversation here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. You write in. You write into letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Whitney and I read those letters. We respond in kind. We answer your questions. We give movie recommendations. We respond to criticisms of things that we say because Mm -hmm. we are film critics and it would be hypocritical if we... We are. If we didn't respect your criticism of our work. So, of course, we do. We are fallible. Aren't we just? And uh, so, yeah. Uh, anyway, we're, we're pretty much an open book, and uh, we try to read as many letters as we can. So without further ado, let's get on that thing. Okay, well, here is a letter from R. Clay Johnson. Hi, R. Clay Johnson. Which sounds like a character from Sweet Smell of Success. It does. That's a, that's a great classy. Name. R. Yeah, Clay Johnson. Donald Logan Stewart um, character or something. Hey, Bibbs and Winnie. In a couple of your previous episodes, you've asked a few questions, so I thought I would give you answers before asking one of my own. Okay. Uh, number one, in one of your previous episodes of Out of Gas, mm. that's our Firefly podcast. Mm. For uh, our Patreon subscribers. Yeah, you asked what, uh, all of them too, one dollar and up. Uh, you asked, what What were some examples of modern, popular trickster characters? My first thought was Long John Silver. Oh. He's always been one of my favorite examples of a character who is likable, but the question of whether or not you can trust him depends on what he can personally gain from a situation. Mm, I, he's more of the antagonist of the story. True, but he's also the father figure to the protagonist, mm. and he's deceitful for like the first half of the but he, Treasure Island. He, he doesn't like change identities several times throughout to get what he wants or to get out of a situation. He has a goal in mind. Yeah, I wouldn't. He, but he's this. I, I see what you mean, though. He's, he's dishonest, deceitful, and the protagonist yeah. doesn't know how trustworthy they are. Yeah. Clearly, they're comfortable lying. Clearly, they have an mm. agenda, but. Maybe he really likes me. Yeah. I think he's in the gray area. Okay. Also, I, one other thing I would say is that he's that character is a hundred years old. Actually, more than a hundred years old now. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. So I, mean, I guess modern era of fiction okay. overall, but certainly not 
yeah. recent, but uh, I can buy it. In the same vein, a more recent example would be Captain Jack Sparrow. Jack Sparrow's a trickster. Yeah, that's um, fair. Especially the, from the original film, although mm-hmm. his fun ambiguity has been watered down as Disney felt they needed to explain his character and make him more heroic. This is also true. Totally true. Um, another good example I thought of only after listening to a rival Star Trek podcast <laughs> is Alem Garrick from Star Trek Deep Space oh, Nine. Oh, total trickster yeah, character. 100%. Yeah. His motives are never clear, and while he's usually on the side of our protagonists, you're never certain. I was love seeing him in an episode, though, and I want to like him. There are just a few I've thought of. Hopefully, I haven't completely misunderstood what a trickster is. Uh, yeah, no, um, mostly that's right. I think I, th- I do agree that Long John Silver is in a bit of a gray area mm-hmm. because he doesn't really check off all the boxes, but he's certainly mm-hmm. an adjunct to I, a trickster character. I think the most popular uh, recent trickster character is probably uh, Heath Ledger's version of the Joker from The Dark Knight. Well, he's just the antagonist, though. I mean, no he, one, no one trusts him. No he's one... the antagonist, but... Uh, you don't know what his motivations are. Mm-hmm. He lies constantly. I guess other uh, villains try to trust him, and it always backfires on. Yeah, him. yeah. So, yeah, so okay. you know, at, at the end, he just reveals, "I just like chaos," and that's a very trickstery thing to to represent. Mm. Um, a lot of people point to Loki because Loki in mythology yeah. is a trickster character. He is not written as a trickster in any of those movies. <laughs> Occasionally, the first one he is though. Like he, he, he no, 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 no. Like he, he tricks, he tricks Thor into losing all of his power. He tricks his dad into falling into that magic coma. Mm. He tricks uh, Laufey into like no, he does a lot of tricks during that first one. He tricks people, but he's mm. and that first one he is. I think he loses it in the second. I think, I think, and I think in the third one he brings it back a little bit. Maybe so a little bit, but uh, either way, he's very badly written. I think he's been. (laughs) I think Loki has been badly written throughout. It took them like five tries to get him even. Been kind of right. I got one. Huh. Uh, Gaius Baltar in the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. Oh, I don't. I don't. Okay, so Galactica. if you're familiar with uh, we we did uh, Battlestar Galactica on our show, canceled too soon. The original Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the original Battlestar Galactica, Gaius Baltar uh, betrays the human race to the Cylons, who are this android species mm-hmm. uh, who destroy. Pretty much everyone in the human race, except for a few ships, and they're on the run, and that's the plot. Uh, in the original series, Gaius Baltar was just working with the Cylons like the whole time. Mm. In the rebooted series, Gaius Baltar is considered this like celebrity super scientist. He's like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Like mm. everyone knows who he is, whether or not he's actually, you know, deserves all that acclaim, considering the things people say about them. Actually, he's very close to the old grass Tyson. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, but uh, when like all of humanity like dies out, guys, Baltar doesn't just join with the Cylons. He actually joins with the humans, but he might be working with the Cylons the whole time, or he might not. Mm. And you never know where he's going to lean. And frankly, neither does Gaius Baltar. He's just in it for Gaius Baltar. Oh, yeah, so yeah. that's actually a really, really good example of a trickster because every other like. Every season and how sometimes every other episode, his whole agenda changes, but you believe it every time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Garrick is a good example. Great example. Um, yeah. Um, um, lore isn't a protagonist, but lore is a trickster. Lore from from t- Next Generation. Oh, yeah, a little, every time yeah, you see sure. Lore, he's like, "Oh no, yeah. I've turned over a new leaf," or "No, yeah. it's okay. I'm just yeah. leading the Borg now." Uh-huh. The Borg trust me Just for the, some reason. In, in sort of the classical myth- mythological sense, I feel like there isn't a lot of um, there aren't a lot of sort of epic modern examples of somebody like Dionysus. You know, somebody sure. who will change their shape and lie constantly, and you know they're not your protagonist, so you never know where they're you coming know, from. Uh, Natalie uh, Dormer looks like she's playing a version of that in the upcoming spinoff of Penny Dreadful. 
Uh, like she, wouldn't know from that. But I yeah. just all I've seen is the trailer. It looks like she's playing like three different characters trying to manipulate like 1940s Hollywood into yeah, getting yeah, into yeah. like a like, something involving the Zoot Suit riots. Yeah, I, I don't I, know. I feel, I feel like this is another example of how Save the Cat kind of hobbled screenwriting in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, it it's. Save the Cat is a screenwriting uh, textbook, essentially, mm-hmm. that uh, kind of codified the way a lot of modern Hollywood films are written. Mm-hmm. And it was meant to serve as kind of like light advice and observations, but ended up being a little bit too much of a holy text for a lot of screenwriters. Yeah, basically. They felt like they needed to, to sort of. What, uh, what, what Save the Cat to, did. What Save the Cat did was it pointed out that if you really think about it, pretty much every movie tells. The same type of story. They each have these similar elements, these structural elements, these pacing Mm. elements. Here's how you can discuss that, and here's how you can use that to your advantage. Problem is, is that instead of saying, well, anything I write is going to follow Save the Cat no matter what, so this is just good terminology for me to use, Mm. people started looking at it as a blueprint, and then everything got really, really samey, as opposed to... We're telling a good story, yeah. and naturally, we will hit these bullet points. So yeah, that happens a lot. The Cat is 15 years old. It's published in 2005. That's it? I feel like it was so much older than that. Oh, yeah. Blake, it had this, Blake Snyder's name. It had this author. massive impact, like, mm-hmm. right away. when it was, And it's a good book. Yeah, I like but, it. But, but I, feel like, like, I feel like sometimes when people get information or, like, new ways of thinking about things, they think, oh, that's it. Uh-huh. It's solved. I don't need to go any further mm-hmm. when what it should do is give you the tools you need to, to push further. To be fair, the subtitle of Save the Cat was the last screenwriting book you'll ever need. Um, oh, that's marketing. That's, that's, uh, it's marketing, and it's you know, a little conceited. Um, well, yeah. But I think uh, that kind of like structure-oriented screenwriting, which is every Hollywood film, uh, disallowed for ambiguity and ambiguous characters. Mm. You know, all, the, In Save the Cat, all of motivations had to be kind of explained in some way or depicted it in some way you know even if it's just them like standing next like one single shot of them standing next to a tombstone Mm, my wife is dead that's their motivation all right yeah also i just fridged a character in my example (laughs) (laughs) jesus Uh, it's pretty well you know whatever i'm I'm commenting on the non-creativity so i I think that's why a lot of people aren't really seeing tricksters a lot because they're difficult to write with that mindset that's a good point i think they i think they belong more in television where having a character who pops in and mm. creates an element of chaos and then pops out yeah. is a great way to juice up the plot every mm. other week. Yeah. Like, I've seen characters like that on Supernatural. I can't remember their names offhand because I haven't watched that show in forever. But Supernatural is another show that has elements of that. Mm. Um, I mean, what, what is the great gazoo? If he's, not a trickster, he's a trickster character, yeah. he just show, showed up in the last season or two of the Flintstones <laughs> because fuck it, isn't we it, need stuff to happen. Oh god, isn't it? It's so sad that the well, I mean, Q is is the Star Trek example. Oh, perfect but, uh, trickster, yeah, it's a great example. Um, but yeah, it's kind of weird that we have to go to the Great Gazoo as a positive well, example for they, anything. They fit really well in sci-fi fantasy because you can take the magical powers. Well, you can take the trickster literally. Mm. If you do it figuratively, you just got this really duplicitous and hard to pin down character. Yeah. But in sci-fi and fantasy, you can play it up real broad and give them superpowers, and yeah. it works. Uh, anyway, let's move on. There's more of this letter. Yeah, um, I noticed. Uh, number two on the first episode of episode zero, uh, Bibbs said that he thought uh, there was a Superman film that introduced the idea that his mom made the costume. Well, I don't think that's in a film. 
film. That idea is introduced in the television series Lois and Clark. Yeah, someone... Uh, in fact, I believe there's yeah. a scene in the first episode where I actually watch her making it. I, I mm. believe that's what I'm remembering. I, someone mm. mentioned that to me online. It might have been Arclay Johnson, but... Right. Um, yeah, that, I'm 99% sure that's what I was thinking okay. of. And number three, finally, my question. I love all the music for your multiple podcasts. Thank you. Uh, from the classical Cancel Too Soon theme, the Clutch Douglas songs, and All Our Yesterday's theme, which contains one of my favorite sequences, Whitney's whoosh, followed by, <laughs> followed by Bibb's laughter. Thank you, uh, I have noticed that some of your spinoffs do not have their own theme, so I'm wondering, is this intentional? Do you have something in the works? Uh, could you not just find anything that fit? Now, unfortunately, I'm not a musician. However, I am curious if you would be willing to accept submissions from someone who has those talents. I know that sounds like an awkward request uh, from someone who has nothing to, to contribute, but if you ever need someone who is mediocre at audiovisual editing, acting, <laughs> cooking, and expressing his own opinion, I'm your guy. Oh, that's, that's very sweet. Um... Andy Hans does the theme song for Cancel mm. Too Soon, or did the theme song for Cancel Too Soon. Mm. Talented, talented musician. I've asked him to do other things for us, and he unfortunately has said that the muse has kind of left him. Yeah, he's, not, he's, he's really not, talented, He's too. incredibly talented, and he just stopped doing music after a while, I think. Uh, it was very nice of him to yeah. do a little work for us. Um, mm. But yeah, so we... Yeah, uh, my sister has been in a band called Clutch Douglas. There's been a couple of bands, actually. Uh, it's been a band called Clutch Douglas and uh, uh, Night Train. And she's actually in a new band called... Oh, it's Brand Spanking New. Hang on a second. It's called Brand Spanking New? No, it's... Uh, uh, hold on. Um, let, me, let, me, let me look at it. I can remember the name of one of her songs. Tijuana Thunder. She is in a band called Pink Lotion right now. Pink Lotion. <laughs> and you can listen to their work on Spotify, and I highly recommend that you do. Mm. Uh, I believe Erica Badu tweeted about them, saying that they're Ooh, really, really right. good. Yeah, they're in, they're doing some really interesting, like, high-concept... I, I don't even know how to describe it, but mm. it's fun, it's funky, the lyrics are really, really funny. They've got a good uh, good song called Moisture Bait, <laughs> uh, which it, it's probably my favorite, but mm. other songs of theirs include Sex on Mars and uh, Existential Deep Throat. Uh, Moisture Bait is a <laughs> hell of a word. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, you can Love still it. hear Love all it. of Clutch Douglas's work. I think they have like a band camp, right. um, and I think they're also right. on various services as well. Do check them mm. out. Uh, and but please support Pink Lotion. Mm. Like check them out because it's a fun band. I think yeah, you'll but, like their work. But, but uh, uh, yeah, so they've allowed us to use some of their songs for our various projects. We ramped up our projects so fast that it really didn't make sense to like wait to get like a commission yeah. something like well if if we have any enterprising musician listeners who just would want to submit something to it uh I'll tell you what well we don't want to we don't want you to do any work if we're not going to use it like i feel bad like well, if you do a bunch of work and then we don't use it well don't put too much work into it but if you want to write something we'll play it on a show how about that Okay, keep it short. Keep it short. We'll keep play, it short. We'll play on we, show. We, that, like, I, I think there's like legal to... stuff where we can't like play someone's whole music on a podcast. Mm. But like, yeah, if you mm. want well, to, we'll, we'll, we'll give them credit. We'll say who. We'll certainly say, credit but, you. Yeah. That's for certain. So mm-hmm. yeah, we, we if you send us in something and you send us in an email, uh, we will at the very least uh, play it on the show, provided mm. of course that it isn't uh, too, you know too crude yeah, yeah. or something like we to, to the extent that it's a problem. You you can probably guess where our line is. Yeah, we're we're, we're pretty lax, but we just want to make sure that <laughs> no, no one's we, we no are in territory. For um, territory but yeah, uh, listen, uh, we're not against it, and we certainly want to encourage you to get uh, creative uh, with our various stuff. 
Um, but we just want to make sure that we respect any artist's time. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and work. Mm. So. Uh, anyway, the, the, to conclude, uh, yes. by the way, since you're continuing in the Disney vein, uh, you should try to track down the TV movie version of Freaky Friday, starring Shelley Long and Gab- Gabby Hoffman. Oh my god, I forgot it about that. It aired on ABC in 1995. I remember oh, watching it. Oh, yeah. But that's about it. Thanks for all your content, R. Clay Johnson. Yeah, so on uh, on uh, Patreon, we have a show called uh, Not on Disney+, Plus, where every month we focus on a Disney movie or miniseries that is inexplicably not on Disney+, Plus right now. Mm-hmm. Not something that they picked up from Fox that might have the rights tied about to it. Like, it's Disney stuff. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, and we've covered, like, all the Parent Trap sequels and a um, bunch of other stuff as well. And next up, we have, like, a really old TV movie called Moochie of the Little League. We'll be doing that within the next week or so. Uh-huh. Uh, but, yeah, that Freaky Friday, I forgot that existed. I'm totally <laughs> writing that down. I totally I, forgot that existed. I, I once had a question as to, you know, apart from the obvious ones like Dracula, uh, what what single, like, work of literature has been... Uh, I, I, no, I guess my question was... Has not, been not work of li- has been not, not, uh, It wasn't a work of literature. What started as a film and has been remade the most? Ah, so, like, because uh, people have often said that the characters who have had the most films made about them from fiction mm-hmm. are Dracula, Tarzan, and, and Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. Holmes yeah. Those are the top three. And pretty much with a bullet. I think Frankenstein mm-hmm. is probably fourth, but... Uh, maybe so. Yeah, but, but all of those mm-hmm. are, like, in public domain now. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure about... Sherlock might still technically be in some places... Anyway. No, I'm pretty sure Sherlock Holmes uh, is. I know sometimes rules are different in different countries. Like Peter oh, Pan's, yeah. the rights of that are still kind of tied up in England. Yeah. yeah you know? I know. I know. Thanks to Disney, those rules are constantly changing because yeah. they, are, they are clinging tooth and nail to Mickey Mouse. Because Mickey Mouse should be in public domain by now. Yeah. yeah Literally. Yeah. Literally any, should anyone, just be in public domain. Anyone should be able to use Mickey Mouse, to use Mickey Mouse name, to use mm. the, the, the character, the voice. Yeah. All of it should be in but public domain. But they've thrown now. all of their money and weight behind law, like legal actions in order mm. to, to literally just the laws keep just Disney so can, just secure. So Disney can keep Mickey Mouse. <sighs> what they, I mean, I'm surprised they're not doing like... Um, Mickey R. Mouse. You know, just change the name slightly, copyright that, and, you know, make it a little bit more yours. Like, create yeah. a slightly new character. Like, whenever Universal needs to retain the rights to their monster characters, they just bang out something new. Yeah. Dracula Untold. It's a piece of shit. Well, I mean, they've <laughs> but done we new, have the rights. They've Van done Helsing. New, it's they, a piece of shit. There's actually a really amazing, like, recent run of Mickey Mouse cartoons, mm. which oh. I would actually argue are funnier than Mickey Mouse has literally ever been. Absolutely, they are. They're, you've seen them. They're yeah. they're amazing. They're really well animated. The style is a little different, but clearly, it's still Mickey and Donald and Goofy. And- well, the thing is, they're they're knocking off John Kay is what they're doing. John Kay, and I think just Looney Tunes in general. They're well, going for more of a yeah. Looney Tunes kind of vibe. And I also admire. So they, they, uh, they decided the best way to treat Mickey Mouse was to have him be Bugs Bunny. You're not wrong. <laughs> Look, when it comes, listen, Disney cartoons, Disney like individual shorts. Oh. Uh-huh. Beautifully animated. I think the best ones are either the uh, goofy George Geef cartoons mm-hmm. in the 50s or some of their more esoteric stuff, like the old mill. Yeah, it's just a yeah, masterpiece yeah. of animation. Um, but And I love a lot of the Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and Goofy cartoons. Do not get me wrong. But they're just not thigh slappers. And no. I don't feel like they ever were, even when I was a kid. I was really laughing at Looney Tunes. I was chuckling bemusedly at Donald Duck. Yeah. And I think that just, hey, let's just make them really funny and energetic and put 
not a little edge, but a little sass on them. Like just, <laughs> just, just make Mickey not just pure and innocent, and make him like a little, a little bit more of a trickster himself once mm-hmm. in a while. That's great. Yeah, it's wonderful. You can see a lot of those shorts are on YouTube. Check them out. They're so good. Find the one, the Halloween uh, episode. <laughs> the zombie Goofy. Yeah, yeah. where Disney's, or where Disney, where Mickey Mouse's car breaks down on the highway and a zombie Goofy shows up and chases him through the woods. It's repugnant <laughs> and really funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really gross. Seriously, though, John Kay is all over those I things. Know, I know, I John, know. John Kay himself is, is a creep, but yes. he His made, style was very influential. Very influential. Yeah. Uh, here is a letter from Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Uh, hey, Bibbs and Wit. You guys are amazing critics, and even though I don't agree with every review, I do love to hear your perspective and opinions and how they either differ or line up with what I think, and sometimes giving me a new angle and seeing a movie in a different way, and sometimes even changing my mind. Oh, my God. That's like the best compliment Thank you so I can much. get. Thank you. You know, uh, thank you. No, really. That, yeah, yeah I, I don't agree with, with us either half the time. <laughs> I change my mind sometimes. Some, yeah, we do. We're human beings, and, and we evolve. So mm. look, that, that you... Appreciate what we're doing and mm. also listen to us even when you disagree and think maybe we might have a counter argument. No, That's amazing. Me. Thank you so much. And, and you. now on, on to my question. Please. I'm, uh, I'm sorry now for what is to some uh, – what is to some – I came across two movies last year. I really wanted to watch 21 Bridges and Motherless Brooklyn. Ah, I didn't uh, see either of those. I didn't either. Ah. Uh, usually after watching a movie, I get to go online to see what the reviews said, especially if I don't remember anything. <laughs> Uh, with as many new reviews, shows, and videos I watch, I can't remember every detail of a review. When I go online, I read a small amount of YouTube reviews from, quote, respective outlets, usually uh, just YouTubers that go out on their own dime to review releases of the weekend. Uh, does that happen because the movies do not aren't sent out on screeners? Ah. Or do they have a review screening and we don't get reviews? Mm. Uh, if it is, If that is the case, why are some of the movies sent out die why do do some of the movies that are sent out why do they die even when on rotten tomatoes to see how many reviews are from top critics since it's more of an aggregate i thought it would be a good way to measure uh a good way to measure and to reach for each of the movies and this is what i found when the movies were released on the same day okay i'm following you uh on the the 1st of november 2019 motherless brooklyn had 39 top critic reviews mm-hmm. and it was reviewed the same day as arctic dogs which only had five tops <laughs> harriet was me harriet which had 41 and the big movie was terminator dark fate which had 44 top critic reviews uh on the 22nd of november uh, 2019 uh 21 bridges had 27 top critic reviews it was released the same day as a beautiful day in the neighborhood which had 48 and frozen 2 which had 44 after looking at that, it just gave me more questions, since the number of top reviews is basically the same or negligible, except for maybe 21 Bridges. Right. I remember seeing a bunch of ads and trailers for those two movies, and I don't understand how these movies didn't get many video reviews online that I could find. Granted, Motherless Brooklyn was more of a period detective Moorish movie with a great cast, and I thought it would get more of a mention. But 21 Bridges, with that cast and the names attached, I thought those were, should have gotten reviews, good or bad, it doesn't matter. Both were perfect counter-programming for week- the weekends they were released. But how can people find these movies if critics don't review them? Yeah. I personally loved 21 Bridges. It's like an old-school dumb cop movie from the 80s. The movie knows what it wants to be. I liked Motherless Brooklyn, but also to enjoy it, the reviewer needs to have a certain amount of New York City history in mind, especially mm. with the city planning. And I'm not sure how much enjoyment can be found in that. Oh, it sounds interesting to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 
I know this is a lot of info, and I get it if you guys can't can't read this, but is this something that happens often? I would love to hear what you guys think of these movies if you've seen them. Yeah. We haven't. Sorry. Um, uh, da, 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 da. And maybe it would be a good idea, now that everything's moved and delayed, maybe to review some of the other movies that fell in between the cracks. Thanks for reading. Uh, you guys are great. Okay. Uh, thank you for writing. Hmm. Uh, and actually, there's a lot of interesting questions in there. And what you're really talking about is uh, – you're talking about a couple of things. First, are we talking about how press screenings work? Mm-hmm. And you're talking about what gets covered by critics and what does not. So let's just start with a basic sort of understanding of how press screenings work back when we had press screenings. Because right now, when we're recording this episode, in case anyone's watching this later after we find a miracle cure for COVID-19, uh, right now there are no press screenings. There are no screenings at all, really, unless you're to drive there. And they're talking about opening yeah. some theaters in Georgia. I don't know anyone who actually supports that. It seems build, like way too soon, and no build, theater owners I work. Build more drive-ins. This is the time. Build, build more drive-ins. Build more drive-ins. Build them all. Just build, build, yeah. tear, 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 tear down them all. Anyway, uh, but uh, so on, on, a, on a normal situation, here's how press screenings work. Uh, a movie is coming out in theaters. You, let's start with a big movie because little movies work a little differently. So a big movie like Terminator Dark Fate is coming out. Mm. Uh, there will be two waves of press screenings. The first wave is the people who need to see the film extra early because they are doing the press junket. That means they're interviewing the cast, the filmmakers. Yeah, so they're the ones who are not just watching the movie and reviewing the movie, not all of them even review, uh, but they are also writing up interviews, behind-the-scenes stories, doing videos, and other things that take a little bit more time to put together than and, just seeing the movie and reviewing And it. also that publicists tend to like more. Uh, that's often mm. the case, yeah. Publicists, uh, this, the uh, press junkets uh, are comprised of often different people than like sort of the heavy hitter critics mm. that you talk to a few do both i've done yeah. both but uh yeah the junket people are often um yeah uh, what's the word i'm looking for here diplomatic yeah you know that's, that's uh, there, there's a lot of them that are very serious and heavy hitting and, and real genuine critics and there's a lot of them that are mostly in it for the interviews and they're not necessarily well, going to be writing the incredible expose think pieces right. about why citizen kane is better than how green is my valley that's not where they're at they're that, doing different things. that said um and that's not to poo-poo what they do not at that, all. that is an amazing talent mm-hmm. and it's it's, uh, it's hard awesome to, do. to behold it's hard to do yeah. you find somebody who's good at it and it's really astonishing I will always love Grey Drake. I think she's the yeah. best person in the world at this. Yeah. Uh, I know a lot of people who are really good at this. I've mm-hmm. done it myself to mixed effect. Um, but, uh, yeah, they just they, they see movies typically a little earlier. And sometimes they see movies that don't screen for other critics mm-hmm. at all. The typical press screening, unless it is at a film festival, mm-hmm. uh, in which case it could be any time. But typical press screening takes place usually within a week before the movie comes out. And that's, that's what they call the all media. And that's when all of the film critics from whatever outlet and guests can go watch a film yeah, the yeah. week of its release. Yeah. Usually I, just a couple days ahead of time. Sometimes guests aren't allowed if it's like a really like high capacity screening. Like everyone's going to see Star Wars. We don't have room for plus ones. That kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, that's where the majority of the critics get to go see it. However, there are situations in which critics don't go to that all-media screening. Some of them are very, very simple. We had a scheduling conflict. There's a lot of screenings. Sometimes they're at the same time. Yeah, You're yeah. only being paid to write a review of one, or God forbid you have to choose between one or the other. Mm. It happens. And as a result, sometimes mm. you have to go pay to see the movie later. Um, there are other... If, if you're like us, who mm. like to... 
you and I are critics who like to be up on everything that comes out in a weekend. We try. We try to review as many films as we can just sort of fit into our schedules. And uh, as such, yeah, we try to go to as many press screenings as we can for review purposes on this podcast. There's also the idea that the the print film critics, the people who are actually writing reviews, often they're assigned mm-hmm. by their the outlet they write for. Yeah, their editors or yeah, and, what and, have An you. editor has contacted them, said, hey, go to this press screening and write a review for us. And you say, yes, give me some money for that. That's and, um, 90% of the written reviews I've exactly. done. Exactly. And as such, if you write for an outlet that doesn't want a review of Motherless Brooklyn... They're not going to send anybody to a screening of Motherless Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. You're going to go see whatever they assigned you. And if they have multiple people working for the site, not everyone's going to get everything. I've worked mm-hmm. for sites. I'm like, hey, can I please review this? I'm really, ex- I, I'm really excited about this filmmaking. It's like, you already signed it. Yeah, oh, someone else has it already. Too bad. Let me know if that, something yeah. happens and you need someone else to do it. That's it. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I have to go pay to see it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. That's perfectly acceptable. I know there's going to come a day when studios realize... That press screenings are technically optional, and they don't have them ever again. And we're just going to all have to pay, and that's just the way it's going to be. Oh, and don't, the, don't bite your tongue. You don't put I, it out there. <laughs> I want to see them ahead of time. I want Listen, some time. Jeez. Film criticism is part of the marketing process. No. However, it is the only part of the marketing process in which absolute honesty is encouraged. It's just before the movie comes out, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, people who now have firsthand knowledge of the product can tell everyone in the whole world if it sucks. Mm. So they're sometimes gun-shy, and that's why we have uh, 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 embargoes that will lift, like, the night before it opens, so Mm. that word of mouth doesn't get tanked or something. And sometimes the studios have no idea. Sometimes, like, oh, the embargo lifts uh, the night before for Crawl. Everyone loved Crawl. (laughs) I don't know why you thought this, this, like, Uh, Killer Alligator movie was going to be, like, critically lambasted. It's wonderful. C-R-A-W-L, Crawl, not Crawl, the the fantasy film. Oh, critics hated Crawl. Everyone (laughs) but me hated Crawl. Crawl bombed. Yeah, but Uh, Crawl was great, and, like, they just, they didn't know what they had, and it happens. The most frustrating thing is when the embargo lifts, like, an hour before the screen even starts. <sighs> there have been studios who will have their press screening on Thursday night at 7 p.m., mm-hmm. like the day before it opens. Yeah. And some theaters like to open Friday films like Thursday at 10 p.m. So technically you're only getting maybe two or three hours ahead of time. I've had I've seen studios actually lift an embargo. And, and we're like, in L.A., so in New York they already covered it, yeah. you know? I've seen studios lift an embargo like on Friday morning, and I'm like, so I could see your press screening and not be allowed to review the movie until Friday morning, or I could pay to see it Thursday night at 7 o'clock yeah. and get my review written before midnight, and mm-hmm. that's fine. I, it's that, weird. It, it happened to me once, actually, where I was assigned a press screening at 7, and I couldn't make it. I just got stuck in traffic, but it was on a Thursday night, and I was able to go see an 8.30, so like, I, mm-hmm. I can still write, review this film. My review is going to be 90 minutes later than it would be otherwise. Anyway, this is all really inside baseball. Uh, But the other thing... But, you know, they asked. No, no, fair enough. I I just, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole because I had other things I was going to say. Other reasons why people uh, don't see movies at those screenings is if they're not invited. Yeah. And that's true for a lot of people, especially if you work for a small outlet. Hmm. Uh, because they want to reserve those seats for people who will have as many eyes on their reviews as possible. Um, I've worked for outlets where it was really difficult to get into screenings, even if I was mm. at literally at the same time working for another outlet in which I was getting invited to everything. It's weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, when regards to, to top critics on Rotten Tomatoes, 
Rotten Tomatoes works thusly. If you write for a publication that is Rotten Tomatoes uh, certified, you have this much traffic, you have, you know, it's presented well, it's yeah, yeah. clearly not a shabby production, um, you can have your reviews in Rotten Tomatoes. If you write enough or for enough big publications, you can uh, become a certified Rotten Tomatoes film critic, which means literally anywhere you publish anything, it qualifies for Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. But top critics, who have a little star next to their name, so typically... Who, who is you? You're a top critic, uh, No, you? I'm not. I'm a oh, top critic when I write for The Wrap. Oh, okay. Top critics mm. typically are people who write for the biggest publications. Yeah. People who write for the trades, like Variety and Hollywood Reporter or mm. Entertainment Weekly or mm. these big, 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 big publications. There's a few exceptions, I'm sure. But generally speaking, it's the people who have the highest profile. So when I review a movie for The Wrap, because I am at The Wrap, Mm I am considered a top critic. But if I reviewed a movie for Bloody Disgusting, I would just be one of any other critics. Mm. Interesting. Um, So the reason why the top critic reviews typically are about the same is because those major publications review just about everything. And there's... As a result, there's always about the same number of top critics, and they're always reviewing almost every movie. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the things that frustrates me is you'll see in Rotten Tomatoes that like a big movie will come out. Like Avengers Endgame will come out and they'll have 500 reviews. 500 reviews for Avengers Endgame. Mm. Wow. And then something like, well, like Motherless, Motherless Brooklyn, Brooklyn will come out and it'll like have 27, yeah. yeah, or 100 or whatever like that. But I'm like, where did everyone go? <laughs> like, well, what are we just? I know publications aren't rewriting it, but like, no, some, some surely publi- some publications that aren't even like film outlets uh, will mm-hmm. send somebody to these screenings because you know everybody in the world is going to be talking about them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reviews. It's definitely weighing that aggregate. Mm-hmm. People aren't you know suddenly being sent to Avengers Endgame out of the blue from some random outlet to really delve into it and analyze it and give it a bad review. Well, not. No one should well, be out there to give it a bad review, yeah, yeah, but like but it's, you know, I, I feel like a lot of it is just the enthusiasm game. Yeah, and people are really enthusiastic about it. Want to have an article in well, there because yeah, it's going to get a click. If it's so, a big um, movie, that everyone's going to be talking about it anyway. Everyone wants to get in on it, but yes, yeah, smaller movies, there will be fewer reviews. Mm-hmm. You will always see a review for anything, uh, pretty much anything in the trades, mm-hmm. especially if it's. Uh, Eligible for the Academy Awards because in order to be eligible for the Academy Awards, you need to be reviewed by the trades. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you'll get some, but it's always frustrating for me to see like a good movie come out and see like five reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, come on. Have, have it? Has it happened to you? Surely it's happened to you a couple times where you're the only critic. Oh yeah. I film on don't Tomatoes. recall offhand, but yes, yeah, I've that's happened been to me a couple only, times. Yeah. That'll have been the only critic. I think I was recently one of only five. No, no. I think it was like Sea Fever or something like that. Maybe it wasn't Sea Fever, but it was some other like mm. streaming release or. A, oh, I think I'm one of only like two or three. Uh, uh, Critics who actually reviewed the thing about Harry, oh. <laughs> <laughs> like that this uh, made-for-TV rom-com, which is a pretty good ripoff of When Harry Met Sally. Yeah, like it's I like it a lot. The characters are charming, but it's a ripoff of When Harry Met Sally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm like one of like two or three reviews. On that. <laughs> I think I might even be the only yeah. positive one. Um, so uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's what's going on there. Oh, when I- it comes to uh, video reviews on YouTube, I do not speak to that because we don't make those. Mm. Um, but that's another yeah. one where getting invited helps. You get that 
advanced time to put together a review, to film mm. yourself. If you add effects or you do anything additional, that really matters. Luca is very adamant he's, he's playing about hot, these YouTube reviews. Give me my own YouTube show, he says. Stop playing with your bowl, Pat. Um, yeah. So that's uh, that's that. The other thing that also can be an issue for something like Twin Bridges and Motherless Brooklyn, which both came out in November, if memory serves, uh, is timing. At the end of the year, every critic is scrambling to cover everything. November, especially now, uh, all, all of the like, all of the huge releases are all will all hit theaters by Christmas, and a lot mm. of the biggest movies, well, like the big awards prestige movies from studios come out like on Christmas Day a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But they screen but, yeah, almost we, all of them in by, November. By Christmas we have already had a heart attack and died <laughs> from having to see like 12 screenings in a week. Like at last year everything except Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker Cats and I think that Jumanji sequel had already screened before December. And the, and the and reason why... people are putting out their like best of the year yeah, lists. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's like, why. Because people are putting out their best of the year lists at the beginning of December. Or, or earlier in some cases. Mm-hmm. Which I really don't agree with. But people do it. I've had to do it. I didn't like it. But like it's the assignment. Um, people are doing that. Uh, people are giving uh, uh, awards nominations. There are awards bodies, critics groups, mm-hmm. National Board of Review. Um, and yeah, they need to have seen these things in order to vote for them if they're good enough. So yeah, there's a ton. So from the last week in October to like the first week in December, everyone in the industry is scrambling. And the last couple of weeks in December always suck because everything has died down except for maybe one or two big blockbusters that don't have a lot of Oscar hope, so they don't care if no one mm-hmm. sees it. And well, like, um, like your Star Wars, like Star Wars, and even that got a couple of nominations. Um, and uh, also, a lot of people in Hollywood want to take the holidays off, like anyone else. <laughs> it sucks for us freelancers because we're out of shit to write about. <laughs> we can't not make any money in December. But mm. anyway, it's a weird industry in a lot of ways, and I'm interested to see how it's going to change and evolve after the industry has dramatically shifted right now. Yeah. Because there's less work for everybody, there's less stuff to write about. And that's going to go on for a while. Well, there's there's always plenty to write about. Well, you know what I mean. There's less, I there's less topical stuff. Yeah. There's less eye-catching news and fewer new releases mm. that everybody is talking about simultaneously. Fine, fine. That well, was ch- I, ch- chasing chasing that that particular fox was never fun. Never, I agree. It's not even fun to read about. Um, but well, maybe, to, maybe a, to an extent, to an extent, to an extent. Well, like when something new always, comes out and it's an exciting, adjunct, people yeah. want to talk about it a little bit. But I when everyone when is publishing like the same article about it. It gets dull, and you do realize after a pretty short while that it's all, all an adjunct of the advertising anyway. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, Kumail Nanjiani uh, had, hmm. a, had a great joke recently about how next year's Academy Awards are going to be 30 minutes long because they're just <laughs> films are being released for the bulk of the year. Yeah. And I'm um. not, I'm uh, beginning to uh, think so, that if... So if, I'm looking forward to seeing First Cow in Best Picture. Uh, or oh, I think First Cow, Emma, uh, The Invisible Man. Or Birds of Prey. Birds of, well, Birds of Prey. I like Birds uh, of Prey. Listen, what's going to happen at the Oscars is I, I think two things are going to happen. They're going to delay the Oscars. Mm-hmm. It's happened before. Uh, or uh, they're going to adjust the rules for the year. And they're going to have to announce those rules. Luca, stop trying to knock over the garbage can. <laughs> they're going to have to announce those rules early enough that studios can actually adjust. Yeah. So I don't actually anticipate that happening, but we will just have to see how it plays out for the rest of the year. Good. Anyway, yeah, it's a weird industry, and I know it's confusing. It's confusing to us, too. Mm. Uh, here's a letter from Jinxie. 
Hi, Jinxie. Jinxie. Uh, Dear Bibbs and Whitney, uh, in January, I rented The Third Man because of your recommendation. I enjoyed it very much, and it's become a favorite of mine. Oh, I'm so glad. That's cool, man. When when we can point people toward a new favorite. Uh, Even at the time, I was hit by the message of conflict between lives or money being more important. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or, as a character said, no one thinks in terms of human beings. Governments don't. Uh, When I watched the film, it was considered very poor taste to say aloud how many people you're willing to let die for economic gain. (laughs) (laughs) There's a whole speech about how that's like the most evil thing ever and now people are advocating for it on the news fast forward four months and people are saying that it's uh what has long been a silent truth that it's fine for a certain number of people to die so the rich can continue to make money grocery workers are having to decide between a paycheck or risking their lives and when the vaccine is made available the wealthy and wealthier nation will be likely the first to receive it because of this the third man has become even more important to me that's a good point uh Harry Lime is monster. One of the great movie villains, I think. Yeah, yeah. He's he's brilliant. He's charismatic. You understand why people would like him. Mm. But he has no actual soul. He has no conscience. It doesn't yeah. mean that he doesn't care about things. In fact, he's actually really hurt when his best friend like betrays him, but yeah, he doesn't care about people if there's nothing in it for him. Mm. Like he cares about people who care about him because they like yeah. me. Uh, all of this is to say or ask, what movies are taking on new meanings or resonate mm. with you due to COVID-19? Uh, thanks for your time, Jinxie. Oh, uh, that's a good question. I was just mm. watching something, actually. What was I just watching that was like really on the nose? Mm. Well, I was watching The Curse, but that's not mm. a good movie. <laughs> it's with Will Wheaton. <laughs> oh, golly. It's like weird oh, sideways adaptation of The Color Out of Space. Um, pretty much anything infection-related comes well, across. Well, infection-related, yes. Here, Here's what I'm thinking. We're going to see... I think we're going to see a spate of films about sort of domestic horror, horror at home, yeah. because everyone's home. And th- we're going to start exploring the fears of that. Not of a diseased outside world, but of what we see when we look at ourselves. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's, it's going to get... phobic thriller. Yeah, it's going to get, it's gonna get really, really existential like, I would love fast. to see, like, a sequel or, like... Okay, the original version of The Stepfather starring Terry O'Quinn is one of the scariest movies ever. And Terry O'Quinn <laughs> gives one of the great, it's great. It's great Oscar-worthy yeah. horror performances. Like, for as far as I'm concerned, like, right up there with Tony Collette and Hereditary. Like, yeah. damn. Um, and there's a lot of really scary stuff involved with just, if we're not the perfect family, dad will kill us. Mm. And exacerbate that by forcing everyone to stay at home. Like, just take that dynamic. Mm. You could do something really, really scary with it. Someone made a point online, I wish I could remember who, about how movies like uh, Unfriended or Searching mm. seem more relevant now that we're all we're all socially interacting over Skype or Zoom yeah. or, was, or whatever, like, way was, more often. It was clearly often. trying to tap into the zeitgeist at the time, but yeah. now that it's become really common, then it's it feels more uh, more like a shared experience. It, yeah, it feels Rather more relevant like now. Some, something adults see that the kids are into. Yeah. Yeah, um, there's uh, someone else pointed out a good one. There's a great episode or like TV movie from Torchwood, which was a Doctor Who spinoff uh, called Children of Earth, I think. I'm going to look that one up. Uh, but the idea is aliens land mm-hmm. and they strike a bargain. You give us this percentage of your children and you won't die, or or we'll give you all of our resources and cures yeah, for right. cancer and things. And the majority of the whole thing is government saying, "Okay, how many kids can we afford to lose?" <laughs> okay, let's 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 hypothetically, mm. hypothetically, which kids go? 
Well, not our kids, obviously. Yeah. Like, and it just, you realize that just the monetization of human lives Mm. comes so easily to some people. And it's just grotesque. Uh, Two two films have kind of grown in meaning for me over the recent years and have just fallen into sharp, uh, sharp relief. It is Children of Earth. Children of Earth. Yeah. Um, Somebody had to point out to me that Torchwood was an anagram of Doctor Who. I was that thick. Uh, <laughs> they I, don't I call attention to it. They, they don't like on the show, but I realized, yeah. oh, and that was that was the code word for Doctor Who because it's anagram. Of course it is. I should have seen that. Um, but uh, one of them is Adam McKay's Vice, an underrated film. Mm, yeah. uh, it's a biopic of Dick Cheney. I think it's very clever, and uh, I think a lot of people were frustrated because it doesn't really put a button on Dick Cheney, and that's kind of the point of Dick Cheney. Yeah. Uh, I also think it was really similar to Big Short, and no, it, it's, it was, it's like, it's like when you have a hit song, but you put out a very similar follow-up. Yeah, it just doesn't yeah, have the same impact. The, the sophomore record slump. Uh, yeah, um, exactly. I, I didn't mind it because I liked the joke the first time. I think it played just as well with the, the Dick Cheney biopic. Yeah. And what it pointed out was people like Dick Cheney uh. who seek not the public good, but power – are seeking that power as an end unto itself. Mm. They're not seeking to change the world. They're not looking for power so they can have control over something and change the world in any kind of specific way. They don't have a vision for how the world ought to be other than they should be rich and powerful. Yep. And that's it. They will change and they will shift and they will because they don't have an operational ethos other than power, more power, more power. Power yeah. is the end. The, why look are we out gonna, for number yeah. one. Why, yeah. why are we going to start a war? We can. Powerful people do that. Yeah. Why are we? Why are you taking lives into your own hands? Because we can. That's the point. Yeah. We want to be the people who can do that. Yeah. Uh, so, I, not a day goes past when I don't think about Vice a little bit. Interesting. Uh, and the other one is Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street, yeah. uh, which has pretty much a similar end. Uh, where, again, you and I, when we think of being wealthy, like th- th- just have have a brief dream. You're super wealthy. Okay. You, what do we think of? We think of like you know music video. We think I, of having I, a big big mansion, swimming pool, think, filling all, our lives with all, stuff. All I want is a is a mm. screening room. Mm. Uh, do you want an arcade in your basement? No. I want a nice. Okay, I, want I do. A, <laughs> I want a nice screening room. Uh, I want my big fantasy a pool table. There you go. And then like a rumpus room. Yeah, and then just make sure like you know my mom's mortgage is paid off exactly. and stuff like yeah. that. And then pay, pay off. and then uh, give the rest to charity. Basically, yeah, I'm good. Give, give homes to people. Yeah, once I, once, wanna, yeah, once sure I got a roof over my head, my son for the rest of my life and tuition, a good TV. Yeah, I'm tuition good. forever. Um, yeah. That's com- incredibly modest compared to what somebody like Jordan Belfort wants. I know. Not only does he want you know several yachts and you know teams of cars and several several mansions all over the country, I don't want that crap. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't care. I can't even think like that. No. But, Although, but I bet if you had the money, you might start. Who knows? Yeah, maybe so. If I just suddenly yeah. have billions. Um, but what the Wolf of Wall Street pointed out is that people want to get that rich rather specifically so they can ignore ordinary morality. Mm. They want to be able to do anything. Yeah. Do they sure. want to do anything? When you get that rich, and you can, yeah. and there's no reason not to, yeah. sure. Do, do you want to get involved in some sort of like weird prostitution racket? I'm rich enough. Sure. Yeah. That's the message I got from The Wolf of Wall Street. And I think... A lot of people are – that movie doesn't really sit well with them because Jordan, it's presented so excitingly. Jordan yeah. Belfort's life, wow, it's so thrilling. I, I think it was 
I understood what Scorsese was doing. No, he wanted movie, to make sure yeah. you knew it was alluring, but almost all of Martin Scorsese's films are on some level of morality tale. Oh, absolutely. And the problem yeah. is, is that's, that... That's, the, his, that's his Catholic morality coming through. A lot yeah. of people ignore the ending of morality tales because the rest of it looks so cool. Like, mm-hmm. how many people, like, idolize Scarface? He dies horribly! <laughs> I want to sit among a bunch of cocaine. Wow, you want to be a cocaine addict? Yeah, it's That's not your great. dream? <laughs> it's not great at all. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, other movies... Mm. Movies I think about I think about movies about the fall of social structure. Like I actually think about uh, Mad Max, the original Mad Max, mm. which doesn't get talked about a lot because okay. people prefer to talk about Road Warrior. People prefer to talk about Thunderdome. People prefer to talk about Fury Road. I actually think those are all better movies than the original Mad Max. Mm. But the original Mad Max is quite good. And what people often forget about is that the original Mad Max isn't post-apocalyptic. It's mid-apocalyptic. <laughs> it is still like people around. He's yeah. a cop. He has a wife and a kid and a house. They're trying to keep civilization together as it is in mid-collapse while roving gangs of violent people who are now no longer following the rules of society are getting increasingly bold. It's that moment where the shift occurs, where... We, society exists at the beginning of the movie, and with the fall of Mad Max, with the death mm-hmm. of his family and the collapse of his own moral code, there too goes society. Mm-hmm. And I think that movie is more interesting as we see this interesting, fascinating, kind of terrifying moment where we're living in uncertainty and we're not sure what elements of society are going to be open next week. Or mm. in a year. And if they reopen, yeah. will they reopen the same way? Are we permanently changed? That's something I think about and I'm rather mm. fascinated with. Oh, you're, you're thinking of Mad Max. I'm thinking of High Rise. Well, uh, High Rise uh, is another perfect example. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, if you haven't seen that, oof. Yeah, yeah, um, high Rise. Describe yeah, High Rise. Uh, high Rise. It's like the world right now. Uh, <laughs> Everyone lives uh, yeah, in a it's, giant it's, high rise. It's based on a novel by J.G. Yeah. Ballard. Yeah, it's, it's uh, it takes place in this ultra modern high rise. The bottom floors contain families and uh, like middle class people, whereas the top floors are all the ultra wealthy. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, eventually, I, 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 I forgot just... if this was the way in the movie. I've read the book. Oh, in, yeah. in the book, there's like a pool and like exactly the middle, and that's sort of like the divider. There's a pool. The there's also the like class. a grocery store. Yeah, yeah. theoretically, you would people, never have to leave. Yeah, yeah, unless you have a job, like you'd never have to leave. This building, and but, that's the uh, appeal, that's the allure. And then, like, on the top floor, the ultra rich live, and uh, gradually, people just stop leaving. Well, the uh, th- people stop leaving, they stay inside, even though little things are breaking down, like the lights go out here and there, the, the elevators don't always quite work. And so that begins a lot of animosity between the people above and the people below. And it tur- by the end, people have barricaded themselves inside, mm-hmm. uh, and they there's no electricity. Mm-hmm. They're burning their own clothes for warmth. They're, they're eating, eating their own yeah, pets. They're eating their pets to survive. They're having and they're orgies. Murdering, yeah, yeah and just murdering each other. It's just a microcosm of civilization and total collapse. It's mm-hmm. an intensely cynical. Mm-hmm. Bitter movie, but I, on I, our low really days, it, yeah. doesn't it seem really on on the nose? <laughs> like it's right, it's right up there. Yeah. I also think a lot about movies about mental collapse and isolation. Mm. Um, there's a movie. Uh, it's directed by Roman Polanski. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But he did a movie called Repulsion, which is just about a woman losing her mind in her apartment. That's it. Hmm. It's a whole movie. It's terrifying. Yeah. That alone can be 
terrifying. We don't. Ha- we used to have all of these stories, and we still do, but they used to be more prevalent about sort mm-hmm. of gothic isolation, people living in castles separate from the world, having their own uh, secrets and uh, immoralities, and people coming in and discovering what's happening when nobody's looking. And mm. our world became so global and interconnected, and people, you know, our, our civilization started becoming so. Uh, expansive that that kind of fell out of favor, but that kind of story of just people at home alone, uh, paranoid of each other, uh, keeping secrets, doing unspeakable things, falling in love when they're not supposed to. Like, there's so many different elements of that that I think about um, could be told. Yeah. But um, also idiocracy. Anyway, uh, <laughs> well, that, that was. Specifically, a condemnation of the Bush years, but yeah, it's still, it's still, still feels, apt. Yeah, it's still apt. The abandonment of of, uh, of reason of and science, yeah. and how that is collapsing society, while people mm. still think society is fine yeah. because hey, at least Fuddruckers is open. Uh, I think there, there isn't something that's really sort of condemned modern culture in a way that I found really bracing yet, other than something like sorry, sorry to bother you, you. Yeah. Um, but. This is gonna make me sound like such an old man, but the the, the obsession with artifice, yeah. the way you present on uh, social media is more important than the way you are. Sure, and I haven't yet seen just like a really acidic satire of that type of culture. I, yeah. I didn't see I know the I bling have. ring. I know that's that. I hear that's a that. good one. Yeah, yeah. I, no, it's been done. I'm I'm having trouble thinking of one that's particularly spicy, but mm. um, yeah. Anyway, there's plenty. Listen, there's plenty to work with, and I think it's really fascinating to think of something like The Third Man, which, if you haven't seen it, is one of the best movies ever made, and I don't mm. say that lightly. Um, and it's about uh, Vienna after World War II, and the city was split into different factions in each different country. Like, oh, owned a, like owned a piece, owned of, a piece it. of it, yeah. and uh, as but here's the thing: they all spoke different languages, and nobody was talking to each other. So it was this and huge then, fucking clusterfuck. But it wasn't, and it wasn't the black like market was huge. Yeah, it wasn't like conquering. It's just the uh, the they were there to rebuild, but yeah. many countries couldn't figure out how to organize that. And yeah, yeah there was a black market yeah, for everything. Collapse of infrastructure, collapse of morality, and uh, Joseph Cotton plays a guy who comes to town because he's looking but, for work, and his best friend Harry Lime has work for him. But he gets there, and he gets there like an hour after Harry Lime has been killed mm-hmm. so he's trying to investigate the death of his best friend and everyone tells him your best friend was a monster your best friend was the worst human being I ever met in my life and he's like motherfucker what it's my best I, friend man i just yeah. got here i don't even know what's happening so he's <laughs> he's sticking up for this guy not realizing that harry lime will eventually be revealed to have been one of the great villains mm-hmm. in movie history um it's great it's funny it's exciting it's mm-hmm. disturbing and uh yeah it's so specific in where it takes place and when it takes place that it's universal. Mm. That might seem contradictory, but when you're making something that feels real, you get this sense that, well, if the if it's this real and this honest and this uh, uh, and has these themes that are still relevant today, well, then shit, I guess these themes must always be relevant. Yeah. As opposed to if it's vague, I can still apply to it. It just doesn't mm. have the same weight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Anyway, that, that was long, long-winded response. But, Sorry. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, here's a letter from Brett. Hello, Brett. Hi, Brett. And this one goes back to February. Uh, I, I skip around a lot in, cr- in chronology. Um, I apologize if I don't get to your letter. It is uh, a little bit random. I try to pick sort of a variety of voices. And I, I have long pick, since yeah. put Whitney in charge of this. So, yeah, it's all on me. If yep. you haven't heard your letter in a while, bug me on Twitter. 
you, if you really want us to read it on the air, I'll, I'll get to it. Yeah, if it's um, important and we missed it, mm. please just poke, anyway, poke Whitney in particular. Uh, it's uh, this one that comes from Brett. It says, "Dear Rock Meister Mick Jagger, cool Rock Meister Mick, cool. Get it? I get it. Rock Meister Mick, cool. And Bibbs." Uh, I just finished listening to your iron list on the defining movies of the 90s, and it proved to me, someone who was born in the year 2000, how weird the 90s must have been. They were! Oh, no, it was just... It was just no, it was, really, it was really weird, dude. It was a really eclectic time. You could turn on the radio, any, like, mainstream radio station, and hear, like, eight different genres within an hour. Yeah. Like, just music was that eclectic at the time. Uh, Bibbs asked which films were the most defining for the 90s of people who didn't live through the 90s, and I think my answer for that is definitely Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, yeah. That, look, that's, well, no, that's, that, that, yeah. that's right where it was. Uh, in my school, everyone read Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet in grade 10, and all the teachers lovely put Romeo plus Juliet on once we were done reading. Uh, because of its utter ridiculousness, the teachers made this made it a meta lesson on what the 90s were. And since it was one movie everyone had seen, conversations outside of class could all... Were, could be known to drift into how fucking weird were the 90s. <laughs> yeah. Well, if that Romeo and Juliet made it was any indication, etc. Uh, so I think kids today, uh, the 90s were essentially the MTV edited decade. Yeah. Uh, though I think if it's any consolation, there are better 90s movies that caught on when I was in high school. Scream and American Pie were fairly popular still, okay. even though we still saw them as dated. And when people started watching Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, high school kids think that movie is just... So capital C cool. Uh, personally, as the movie guy, uh, I was really a huge fan, huge fan of Fight Club. Mm-hmm. And yes, I would have said American Beauty was one of my favorite movies in high school. Uh, and maybe even now, even though I haven't watched it since the whole Kevin Spacey thing. Right. Uh, though the why is a good question because I do definitely recognize it as an incredibly 90s film. Uh, maybe it because it so effectively tears down the whole notion of suburbia. Who knows? Hmm. Uh, thanks always for the great content and apologies for the long letter, Brett. Uh, um, thank you for that insight. Yeah. Hmm. I, you know, when I, uh, if, if you don't recall that episode, if you didn't listen to it, uh, Whitney and I chose the films that we thought uh, most sort of t- typified. Mm-hmm. The 90s. These are the most iconic films of the 90s. These are the films that made the 90s. Yeah. Uh, many of them were great. Some of them were just really 90s. I think I picked Roland Emmerich's Godzilla. Yeah, I, I, I put Hackers on my... <laughs> hey, I, I like Hackers a lot. Yeah. Capital C, capital G, great? No. No, no, no. no. Lower G, great? I'll give you that. <laughs> I had a great time watching that movie, but that's about it. But what, I, what had occurred to me was that I lived through the 90s. They were my formative years, and I was absorbing... All the culture I could. Mm. Um, But when you go back a couple of decades, I wasn't there for the 70s. Mm. My image of what the 70s were are movies and TV and comic books and music. And it's not, I'm not seeing everything. I'm seeing the stuff that either I sought out or remained popular, which is usually only a small fraction of anything from any given decade. Exactly. So. I'm getting a skewed perception of what the 70s were, but in my head, they look like car wash. <laughs> you know, like for me, that's the 70s, yeah. like something like car wash. I, I, I think, ah, the 70s. Boom. I think car wash. I think taxi driver. Yeah, I was going to say, I picture stuff like Dirty Harry, like these yeah. really kind of bleak, filthy movies. Yeah, but... Again, that's, that's only I, one small perception of what the 70s were, and mm-hmm. it's entirely tinted by pop culture. Yeah, These are yeah. not, you know, intended to be actually indicative of what life necessarily was like. Certainly not for everybody. Yeah, I, 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 we've said this before, 
if you want a good slice of what the decade was actually like, mm. don't watch the big hot mainstream films. No. Watch the softcore porn. I'm not. <laughs> actually, kid, I'm not kidding. Okay. Because it's actually, not what I was going to say, but all right. The softcore porn <laughs> isn't smart enough to have any filters. No. The outfits are going to be whatever the actors had, <laughs> which is just what ordinary people were wearing at the time. Mm-hmm. They're not trying uh, to sell you the outfits. They're not trying to sell you anything like that. Because mm. any other movie or TV show, they're choosing these things very carefully. Yeah. They're choosing their music very carefully. They're choosing so, everything. Like, it's just it, boom. If you want to know what 1997 was like, don't watch Dark City. Don't, no. don't watch LA Confidential. No. Don't watch Titanic. Those were big movies. So those are good movies. Watch yeah. those because they're good movies. But if you want to know what the ni- 1997 was like, watch Hot Springs Hotel. Because okay, Hot Springs that's, Hotel, not, that's not strictly speaking true. <laughs> Hot Springs Hotel Hot is Spring, not indicative ter- of the ter- entire decade. In terms of the attitudes and the dress and the fashion and the way... It's very specific, dude. <laughs> I'm going to pull this back. I'm All not right. going to say the softcore point. All right. What I am going to say is the sort of lo-fi... Indie films, a, a like the stuff more, that gets yeah. kind of thrown together. Like I feel like Clerks, Clerks is, captures yeah. an actual vibe. Pulp Fiction doesn't capture a vibe of the nineties. Pulp it Fiction cap- a vibe of the nineties. No, it kind of did, yeah. but like, but because it was taking stuff Quentin Tarantino liked from the seventies mm. and injecting into the nineties. Uh, Clerks actually came from retail experience in the 90s. Yeah. Is it weird and raunchy and crass and maybe a little cleverer than normal? Yeah, but you're going to get the gist of what it was like to work retail for a day. That's pretty genuine. That that yeah. that angst and that vibe and that depression and that sense of your life and career is going nowhere. And like your whole life revolves around this job and this job doesn't give a shit about you. That's very 90s. Yeah. We had pop culture instead of actual culture. And there was like <laughs> the first generation well, where that was something that was growing up with us, where there was a whole bunch of people in their 20s who were still talking about Star Wars. Mm. You know, like, well, it wasn't a thing. There, there, there was even sort of an ironic wink about it. There's a whole conversation in Richard Linklater's film Slacker about sort of the, the actual social structure of the Smurfs. Yeah. Because that's all we had. It was like just the cartoons we grew up on. There yeah. wasn't a We weren't reading otherwise. a lot. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, well, but, we, but that's the thing. There was a lot of book learning, and these mm-hmm. people are college graduates, but yeah, we realized that, you know, we're going to college, we're reading these books, we're learning all about the world, but we're living in a world that is completely culturally dead right now. And so, all we're going to do is apply all of our book learning to frivolous crap because the frivolous crap is all we got and at some point we started to focus on the frivolous crap and also got rid of the, the <laughs> intellect so nah, that, they, that's that's slight, the, that's slight exaggeration people are actually reading going. really a lot but yeah. we all know that there's also times and people mm. who do not yeah. Um, Let's move on. Here's a letter from Luke. Hello, Hi, Luke. Luke. Uh, hello there, gentlemen. I hope this finds you well. I wanted to start by thanking you so very much for all your hard work. During this time of mass insanity, your thoughtful and intelligent discussions of my favorite medium have been an amazing respite. Oh, We're happy to you. provide. Yeah, it's been a respite uh, for me, too, man. This is the, this is the last thing that like hasn't really changed. <laughs> We're still doing this. We're still doing this. Still this, is, this is the one through line that's like Whitney and my relationship pretty much the same as it ever was. Like is Everything it? is pretty much normal. Let's do a socially safe fist bump right now. Boom. Oh, right. well, no, we got to do the uh, the Demolition Man high five. Oh, yeah. Or like, high five. I'm stop in midair. Circles around like you're wiping yeah. each other's glasses. That's, yeah. I, I've been trying to popularize that forever, and maybe now is the time. I, I, I did the uh, 
the Vulcan salute recently, and I felt like such a dork. <laughs> like, live long and prosper. Ah, oh, I did it. I, I actually did it. Like, I, unironically, I did I got it. to do the uh, thumbs up fist bump with Stuart Gordon from Robot Jocks. That was <laughs> cool. I was at a screening, right. Stuart Gordon was there, and then the movie Robot Jocks that he directed, uh, people, instead of like fist bumping, the fist bump with their thumbs, thumbs up. Thumbs up, yeah. So it's like an extra positive fist bump. Boom. <laughs> and I got to do that with him, and I felt as cool mm. as I've ever felt. Mm. Anyway. Uh, and he says, I have a question and a request. Okay. Uh, first up, I have a question regarding Scott Z. Burns' The Report. Did you see The Report? I didn't. With Adam Driver? You I, saw it. I did. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the film outright says that Catherine Bigelow's Zero Dark Thirty inaccurately conveyed how the intelligence that was used to kill Osama bin Laden was gathered and actually supported the CIA's narrative that torture was helpful. Uh, this made me feel like an idiot because I actively defended that film when it came out. My impression was that there, the film had anti-torture stance since the interrogators were unable to prevent an attack in Saudi Arabia. Do you think we need to reevaluate our regard for the film now that we know that the filmmakers were led to believe otherwise? It just feels like such a bummer since I still think it's an outstanding film. Um, before I continue, yes, we need to reevaluate Zero Dark Thirty. Zero yeah. Dark Thirty... I felt it was a very pro-military, pro-torture movie. And I, I didn't sit well with me even at the time. I actually loved that movie at the time. And I actually called it my favorite movie of the year. I remember. Yeah, it is not one. now. Uh, okay. But that has less to do with the movie's politics than just my shifting tastes. Okay. Um, I actually still admire it a lot. Uh, it was going off of information that they had. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they were trying to be intentionally misleading. And in fact, I think if you rewatch the movie, as I have... Mm. Okay. Their portrayal of torture is actually pretty neutral. They tell you it happened. Well, hang on. They tell you it happened. <laughs> I was about to jump down your throat. Give, for me, that. give me a second. Give me a second. Because I'm right. not saying the. First off, torture is evil and we should never have done it. That's un. Uh, that's not worth debating. It's evil. It's, the moral thing, it's, yeah. it's wrong. We should never have done it. It's a, 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 a knife in the heart of our country, I think. It just, mm. It's a terrible thing that we did, would never have done. Uh, on principle alone. But the movie knows that it was real. And I think if they hadn't portrayed torture, that that would have been indefensible because that's part of the national identity at the time. Mm. That's something we were doing. However, it's also portraying characters who, A, didn't feel bad about it, and B, were never taking a task for it. Mm. And so this movie is almost Michael Mann-like sort of here's just what happened. Um, scoots past torture without making a moral stance because it's not, I think, mm. a moral movie. I don't think it is a, a moral movie at all. I think it is a movie about how people got shit done. And what you'll notice is that they do torture people. They get some information out of, out of them. They also confirm that it's pretty much information that they had anyway. Anything that they got is really pretty minor, and it didn't end up really helping them get to Osama bin Laden because that would happen many, 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 many years later after a whole bunch of different dead ends. Mm. So it sort of shows that torture was part of the process, and some people thought it was helpful, and here's why, but it actually kind of no. wasn't. But it never takes a firm stance mm. on it. Is that questionable? Yeah. Well, that's here, actually questionable on the part of the film, but I actually don't think it's a bad film well, because I here, think it's after something a little more simple than just torture. Yeah, was I bad. mean, it, it is an intense I film. Thought, I think, something more complicated. Than torture I think Ka- Catherine Bigelow is a inst- very intense director, and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, when it comes to sort of a comment on. Uh, War and the soldier's experience, I think the Hurt Locker is far superior. Mm. I think it actually has a lot more on its mind. Mm. Uh, Zero Dark Thirty was a little too documentary to, for my taste. And the thing was, 
as as the events depicted in the report, which is a film about how Adam Driver uncovered that torture was just something people wanted to do, going back to the Vice about how mm-hmm. people just want power to do whatever. Right. Um, th- those voices were already in the mix mm-hmm. when Zero Dark Thirty came out, and we were already seeing television shows like Twenty Four that were really kind of. Almost glamorizing torture in this way. Oh, 24 and, glamorized and, torture. I'm going to say it right was, now. Yeah. 24, we can maybe debate about Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. 24 flat out said, without torture, this country would have been destroyed yeah, decades yeah, yeah. ago. And it was, yeah, incredibly, incredibly moral vacuum. It's, oh, it's, yeah. a, it's a thrilling show. I watched a lot of it. Oh, it's but, great, yeah. but it's really <laughs> it's, fucked up. It's good TV, but it's bad philosophy. Jack Bauer and, is uh, not a hero. He is an anti hero at best. Yeah, yeah. Chloe yeah. is a hero. Chloe is a hero, yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, there was already people It's sort of in the news sort of criticizing this, but we were also getting these counter-narratives from the media, like 24. There were even um, you know, the, the, that whole wave of torture horror films that were coming out at the same yeah. time that were kind of looking at, at torture as just sort of something that we have to face now. Well, it's something that so evil it's really people do. Something it's, that evil people do and kind yeah. of pushing our faces in it, but... You could also say that in many ways, especially those Saw movies, like, like these cool machines and he was torturing people for righteous reasons, we're also kind of fetishizing torture in this big way. We sure. were trying to. I think it's fair to say. We were feeling really many ways about torture it at the time. It was in the conversation. It was something I think all the report about. luckily had you know the benefit of hindsight. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think it did undo a lot of the power of Zero Dark Thirty because a lot of Zero Dark Thirty now feels kind of naive. I, it's really frustrating because Catherine Bigelow, uh, she's intensely talented, mm-hmm. but sometimes she makes movies that are about the intensity of a moment or about a moral struggle in a moment. Mm-hmm. And I think the focus on capturing that moment um, kind of ruins the overall takeaway. And the case in point I'm thinking of is Detroit. Oh, uh, yeah, there we go. That's Detroit is a another really, very intense, actually uh, very well-made movie. It's very yeah. well-made, but I actually think to an enormous fault. Mm. Um, Detroit is a film uh, based on a horrifying true story about a bunch of cops who held a bunch of people of color at gunpoint in a house, and they were trying to, I'm trying to remember, someone took a shot at a cop, and they felt uh, justified in... Um, torture, violence, and then eventually killed a bunch of people. And Detroit shows you the build-up to that, and then it shows you the entire horrifying, nail-tearing mm. event. Mm. And on one hand, yeah, okay, this shows you what it was like. On the other hand, it's the amount of detail and emphasis that is put on the torture is grotesque and it is ultimately using um you know a hate crime a series of hate crimes um in a in a way that like when you turn the camera on in that way it ends up yeah. fetishizing it in a yeah. weird and horrifying well, way and I, I don't think she meant to make it look good yeah. but by there's people have written bril- brilliant essays about this and I was really uncomfortable when I saw the film and I couldn't put my finger on why and then I read some essays about Detroit and I'm like kind of put your thoughts in order yeah right that's I, I wasn't articulate well, enough it, it, or knowledgeable enough to put all the context together but it's mm-hmm. a film that clearly a lot of talent went into but I think in the wrong direction and mm-hmm. I think that's one where the emphasis on trying to capture the moment moment uh backfired real bad and i think zero dark 30 did that a little bit 
And I yeah, think I it's think... certainly in that one part, but I think the rest of it's really excellent. Um, and then Hurt Locker kind of stays out of the politics of it, which gives it a little bit of... Not that it's an apolitical film, but it's not about well, like it's, these it's, larger moral issues. It's about yeah. people on the ground. and yeah, yeah, That's yeah, a that's, different kind of conversation. It's a different kind more, of More about it. it, it it's... I think I like the Hurt Locker because even though it's about a specific time and place, it could be applied to just war in general. It's a little bit more yeah. philosophical. Um, yeah, the, the the dramatization of torture and uh, certain kinds of violence on screen uh, always have people hand wringing it to it one degree or another. I've I've always felt a little uncomfortable with combat and mm. you know th- that old thing that Truffaut brings up about how. Uh, you, if you depict combat on camera, it's going to be really exciting because combat is cinematic. Yeah, even it's, though it's the most horrendous thing in the world happening. Yeah. So once it's you, difficult once, to write to make a film about combat without kind of implying that combat's really cool. Yeah, it's hard to make an anti-war movie because once you put war mm-hmm. on camera, the act of war, it mm-hmm. becomes cinematic, and something that mm-hmm. is cinematic gets elevated. Yeah, and even when, if it's negative, it's elevated. And, and if you have it's, big, a, it's important, it's worth making a movie about. If, if you have this really exciting filmmaking style that's really in the moment, and you're depicting this really horrendous crime, it's going to feel really dramatic, mm-hmm. uh, and that puts a distance between you and the subject. That's it something kind that of ta- kind of dehumanizes the the victims. That's one of the of reasons why uh, Steven Spielberg's opening for Saving Private Ryan, mm. uh, that D-Day sequence, was considered so revolutionary at the time, was we were so used to looking at war, mm. and that sequence was trying to put you in the moment of it and show you the horror of it. I still think it is maybe even still too stylized for its own good yeah. to really sell that message. But well, at the time, it was a huge dramatic shift in how war movies were told. In fact, the, the way it's photographed didn't – I think he like artificially added camera shake. Mm. Uh, Spielberg did like – when he photographed it with like a, a more still camera but then used computer technology to make the image seem like well, the, shaking Well, the more. shutter was open so that yeah. you're actually capturing like more of the image and it was crisper. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. The point is there, there is – even though it's really down to earth, there's still like an element of artificiality to that. But you know, that's that's Spielberg for you. He doesn't yeah. make natural movies. No, but that um, was that was as close yeah. as he ever got. I think in some respects. Yeah. Uh, but there was more to this letter, wasn't? Yeah. There? Uh, yeah. Uh, Luke says next up, I'd really appreciate it if you gave King Arthur: Legend of the Sword another look. <laughs> oh, oh, must I? Um, Matt Goldberg of Collider has a great take on the film, in which uh, which is that Excalibur is a metaphor for trauma. Hmm, I don't, okay. Don't, don't really see. I'll, I'll read more. Uh, once you look at it from the from that angle, it becomes a movie about a man accepting the support around him to help him process the loss of his parents. And while I have your attention, let me address a few of your issues with the film. Yes, there are a ton of montages, but they're still expertly crafted and help us get through the typical chosen one beat so we can spend more time with the characters. Yes, the round table at the end is way too on the nose, but I argue it's no worse than the Joker card at the end of Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. Uh, both cases show that the story will continue while letting the story act as a standalone. Uh, plus, it's not as the film uh, is setting up more mythology for more films. We don't hear Bedivere make allusions to a green knight he's seen in his travels. Uh, well, I don't expect you two to do a full 180 on your uh, position, but another look would be much appreciated. Um, and one last thing, while you both constantly give regards to Linoleum Knife, mm. listen to Linoleum Knife by Alonso Duralde and Dave White. Mm-hmm. They are excellent film critics. They're uh, insightful. They're better than us. Uh, <laughs> okay, moving well, they're, on. They're better than me. They're uh, better than us. All right. I'd love to give a shout-out to the Digi Gods podcast, hosted by Wade Major and Mark Kaiser of Lafka. 
Uh, their DVD podcast was my first gateway drug into cinema, and my IMDb watch list is still at 900 films thanks to them. <laughs> it actually blew my mind a few weeks ago when they revisited the Shot Factor's release of Brewster's Millions. <laughs> Hearing Mr. Major cite your commentary as a feature in the cross is the crossover that puts the Avengers to shame. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> well, oh, I, I didn't know, know about that. I didn't yeah. know Wade Majors hurt us. That's, that's, that's really wonderful. That's uh, nice. Thanks again for all your hard work. Best regards, Luke. Um, um, okay, well, uh, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Uh, I saw this on a plane. Not an ideal situation to see anything. No, and I'll what? grant you that. That's the ideal situation okay. for this movie. Uh, however, <laughs> however, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Um, you want to say that the Excalibur is a, a metaphor for trauma. Mm. I haven't read that article. Okay. Maybe it could change my mind. Mm. In the abstract, however, I don't think the execution really played that off terribly well. And yeah, yeah. okay, I, I described King Arthur, Legend of the Sword as a series of montages in search of a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's nothing but montages. It's ridiculous. And yeah, okay, you could argue that that's for pacing purposes to get us through this sort of tedious chosen one montage. Uh, I'm not going to give them bonus points for putting a Band-Aid on it. Mm. Like, that's... On some level, sometimes you just have to get through a part in a story. You know, exposition, mm-hmm. whatever. It's hard to do. You just need to just sort of get in and out of it and, you know get that out of the way so you can get to the good stuff. I get that. The whole movie shouldn't be the thing we're trying to skip over. And that's what it feels like with King Arthur, where they're desperately trying to just move through it as quickly as they can, and I don't get any sense of emotional weight from anything. And I think that if Excalibur... And, and by the way, when I say I'm on a plane, I didn't mean I was asleep. I was watching the damn thing. <laughs> but We're like seeing on a screen three rows ahead. Yeah, no, it was the, right in front of my face. It was on those things that was right in front of my um, mm. uh, chair and everything like that. I was wrapped. Right? I had nothing else to do. I get terrified on airplanes, so I try to lose myself in movies whenever I can. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it, that may be the case, and that might even be the case on paper, but I think in the execution it gets lost. I think it is extremely tempting to say, well, this movie has metaphors, therefore it's really good art. Mm. Execution of metaphor really fucking matters. Batman v Superman has a lot of metaphors in it. <laughs> but they're they're jumbled up yeah. and they and the actual execution of it and the way that the characters are portrayed and the pacing of it and the way that the plot sort of collapses uh, on itself, on camera and off. If you've seen the Ultimate Edition, you realize that the the other stuff that they added makes less sense now. Um, that makes the message harder to accept. It's sort of like how The Dark Knight has a lot of plot holes in it. Like, Batman just leaves the Joker up with all those people and we never resolve that. It's full of shit like that. Hmm. Batman Begins is full of shit like that. But... We care about everyone so much that then the story is so clean and like easy to digest that we accept all of these things. And I think the reason why The Dark Knight Rises doesn't get that same amount of grace from a lot of people is that the story is clunky and jumbled <laughs> and complicated to, I think, a fault. I still really like that movie. But I think the reason why it's in really heavy messaging mm-hmm. doesn't get at any bonus points from people about how, yeah, but it's really about a lot of stuff. You're goddamn right it's about a lot of stuff. I'm still distracted about how time was a factor and Batman took multiple hours to graffito tag a fiery bat. <laughs> like, he had no one to help him with that right. shit. Like, it gets distracting the more mm-hmm. distractions you put in your movie. Yeah. So I will happily watch that movie again someday. I will. 
Mm. I'm not going to go out of my way right now because yeah. I have other stuff on my plate. The movie that I saw on a plane that I have actually been dying to rewatch lately is Geostorm. <laughs> Geostorm is such dirt. Geostorm uh, is it's, hilarious, it's and, I think it's, I, I, and I think it's a I little a, intentional, and I, I love a, it. I wrote a review on on IGN for Geostorm, and I gave it a positive review. It Bless one, you. I think it was one of the first things I ever did for IGN, and. Uh, I I had to fight my my own instincts tooth and nail not to constantly make references to other Saturn makes and models of cars uh, or other 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 GM because you remember Geo Motors right there was yeah. the Geo Metro there was the yeah. the uh, Geo what was that well, I don't care but their sedan was the Storm okay the Geo Storm. So this is the like, real thing. Yeah, I know. Then that was a movie called Geostorm. It was a car from Ge- 1995. Geostorm uh, is impossible to take seriously, and I don't think the movie tries. <laughs> it's a lot well, of fun. It's it's yeah. It's like a low rent Roland, Roland Emmerich knockoff with Gerard Butler. You kind of know what you're getting. Yeah, uh, it's that one's fine. Uh, it's King, hilarious. King Arthur: part, The Legend of yeah, the Sword. Forget it. No, I don't want to go go off too far. I would on love Geostorm, to. But, I'm going to uh, say is this: when you watch Geostorm, and you should. When you meet Abby Cornish's character, here's how to make the movie flower. She's playing a Terminator who is trying to learn the meaning of life. <laughs> Just that one bit. Just imagine she's playing a Terminator who has given up being a Terminator because she fell in love with that guy from that from across the universe. Boom. That's it. That guy from so much fun. Jim Sturgis is his name. <laughs> And, and also, Jim Sturgis is a silly putty sculpture. He, he's just not <laughs> not a compelling screen presence. No. Um, but <laughs> King Arthur: Legend of the Sword uh, might be about trauma, but it's about the movie is just so fucking testicular that I can't get around any any sort of symbolism it might have. Mm. Um, the symbol and yeah. Uh, I get this criticism a lot uh, when I sort of lambast a film that is, you know, heady or heavy with symbolism. And I think, oh, you know, a cure for wellness is still crappy. Uh, <laughs> I didn't say that one know, Batman v Superman is still crappy. Yeah, and, and, I'll, and, you know, I'll write a review or, you know, I'll put my opinion out there and someone will say, no, man, you just didn't get it. It's got all these symbols. And I always like, want to say, I get it. I, I just saw don't think it's it. good. I saw it. I'm just not impressed. Yeah. That's not clever or interesting. It's possible to understand a movie. Uh, I understand every bit of it. just not yeah. think it's well done. Don't you get it? It had all these symbols. I saw those symbols. Yeah. They're not good symbols. Just just because, like, you... Just because it has symbols doesn't yeah. mean it's it's good. Most yeah. things have symbols. Mm. That doesn't mean they're they're elegantly portrayed or that they have anything meaningful to say or that they're not undermined by faulty aspects of the production, like simple things like low production values or uh, performances that miss the mark or mm. bad pacing or... There's a million different things that can undermine good intentions. And there's a million great screenplays full of rich character and subtext and meaningful commentary about life and politics and God knows what else that have been fucked up in the translation of the screen. One of the best screenplays I've ever read in my entire life, The Affair of the Necklace. No kidding. Yeah. End up being made to me with Hillary Swank. That movie sucks. <laughs> they, and they changed a lot, well, actually. Was, but, like, um, it just, it was just, they took a really deft, you know, uh, uh, complicated and mature and intelligent and, and suspenseful and funny story. And they just made it 
doll. What was um what was the name of the book that was about the making of the film Up Close and Personal? Oh yeah, what the fuck was um, that? I don't remember that. Yeah, there, there was a, a film in uh, in mid '90s with mm. Robert Redford and Michelle Pfeiffer, um, where they played um, news reporters. Yeah, they like rival news reporters, and it was yeah this sort of um, not very memorable, you know, romantic big oh, big budget I, Hollywood. I, I think uh, they had I think it had a hit single. I think that was maybe the thing. so. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, it was, uh, yeah, written, written by Joan Didion. Uh, well, that I'm was, looking for right now. I'm looking for the book. But yeah, some. Uh, gosh, I wish I could Monster remember. Living Monster, off, that's yeah. it. Monster was yeah. it. Um, uh, yeah, Monster uh, Living Off the Big Screen. It yeah, was mo- written by screenwriter John Gregory, who was married to Joan Didion. Okay. And he wrote a book about, uh, about the. the, the Trouble with the making process, the film. and you know, up close and personal. It's it wasn't like a bomb. It wasn't a big hit. It's just a sort of middle of the road Hollywood drama with big stars in it that you might remember if you were around in 1996. Yeah. Uh, but you read the book Monster, which is actually required reading in my film school. Oh. Um, so I'm embarrassed that I can remember the title. But um, Monster was about how uh, the screenplay started as one thing and ended as something completely different. Happens all the time. It's it's that pitch meeting at the beginning of the Majestic just in real time mm-hmm. uh, showing how uh, the best intentions and the greatest screenplays are constantly cut down into whatever the studio wants it to be and what you end up getting is something completely nondescript and forgettable up close and personal would have been a prime candidate for average fest <laughs> I don't <laughs> Which, look, I, here's the deal huh? I think I saw it exactly I don't you don't remember recall. right yeah. I might have just seen the music video for because you loved me <laughs> <laughs> Which is the song from it, written uh, by Diane Warren, performed by Celine Dion. It's a good song. Fine, it's, it's, fine. it's the only mm-hmm. vaguely memorable thing about it. And yeah. I can only remember the bit where Celine so, Dion sang, Because you love me. That's it. That's the only so part it's, I remember it's, that. It's too. entirely possible that there is a lot of symbolism in the movies, but they by the time it reached the filmmakers, it was like cut down and altered so much that the symbols don't connect in the mm-hmm. same way, and now a filmmaker has to... Uh, like a director has to find out what those symbols mean or put in their own symbols and God knows what it originally was. If there's anything that comes together at all, it's probably a miracle. One of my favorite uh, books about making movies is, uh, it's actually called Making Movies. It's by Sidney Lumet. Hmm. Uh, Sidney Lumet uh, directed Dog Day Afternoon Network. He's one of the best directors we've ever had. And he wrote a book. It's actually pretty thin. It's a quick read hmm. um, because he doesn't, he's not doing like a nuts and bolts or anything like that. He's kind of just talking about big ideas and, um, the thing that he wrote in there that was always stuck with me, and I think it's something that you see torpedo a lot of films and a lot mm-hmm. of film franchises as well. And um, and when you hear a story about a movie that got changed over and over again and became nothing of consequence, um, it's something I think about a lot, which is one of the most important things you can do while you're making a movie. Mm-hmm. Make sure everyone's making the same movie. Yeah. Because just because you're telling the same story... <laughs> Doesn't mean you're making the same movie. The same story can be told in a pulpy way, in a serious way, in a surreal way, in a funny way. And one person on the production or in the development house or in the, uh, one of the producers thinks the movie is something that it is not and that no one else thinks it is, mm. fucks everything up. Because you have one person who's fighting to make it a comedy. You have Mm -hmm. one person who's fighting to make this obviously R-rated movie a PG-13. Thus kind of diminishing its potential to chill. It's 
It happens all the time. Yeah. Look up Kevin Smith's interviews about his uh, his journey with Superman. Oh and, yeah, and and, the, and that one producer who needed a spider. Oh god, <laughs> this, this one producer was obsessed with. I, uh, Did you ever read scene. that script? I didn't read the script. I have, and uh, I and I haven't been able to to set time aside to watch the death of Superman Lives. Yeah, which is all about the the sort of really ambitious Hollywood blockbuster Superman project that uh-huh. just fell apart in the nineteen nineties. Yeah, yeah but Tim Burton and Nicolas Cage were mm-hmm. going to do a movie that was based on the death of Superman, mm-hmm. uh, which was of course one of the biggest comic book events ever, and especially in the nineteen nineties. And Kevin Smith wrote a draft. His draft was not the one that they were going to make. No. Uh, but he he wrote a draft. I read it. There's good stuff. I think Lex Luthor is written real well in it. There's actually like a really good bit where Superman uh, wants to take Lois Lane on the most monumental uh, date of her life, and they mm-hmm. actually end up having like a picnic on the Mount Rushmore. Okay. That's like it's cute. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's like stuff you can only do with Superman. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You can tell there's shit that's really forced. Mm. And the things that were most forced was all this shit that was mandated by the producer who wanted things like, hey, you know what's the worst part of Superman? That costume. I want him in this costume as little as possible. So, oh. um, well, but... Okay, I understand trying to subvert. I, I like the my favorite uh, the Avengers movies is the one where Iron Man isn't in the suit a lot. Yeah. Um, but that that's organic. Superman's that's not... a, a sticker you put on your fridge. It needs to look like that. And it, yeah, there's there's certain expectations. We yeah. should have the costume more or less there. So that was an issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, he really wanted a giant spider. Like said... a giant metal spider. So when Bizarro teamed up with Lex Luthor, it all led Really like glad- awkwardly, gladiator- gladiatorial arena where Superman fights a giant spider. I don't think it was a gladiatorial mm-hmm. arena, but regardless, Superman had to fight a goddamn giant robot spider. That's not the worst thing Superman could fight or anything like that. But they had to bend over backwards to fit it in, and then they ended up bending over backwards to fit it into another movie because the producer was so obsessed with it. <laughs> which is why, producer. which is why Wild Wild West ends with a giant robot spider because he couldn't put it in a Superman. He finally movie. got it. He finally got his spider. It never worked. It never made. <laughs> Any goddamn sense. You ever notice that Wild Wild West has basically the same plot as that one Batman the Animated Series mm. with uh, Raz al Ghul and uh, uh, Jonah Hex? I did not see that one. Yeah, Raz al Ghul. It was this, it was this seen, flashback yeah, where... I've only um, seen maybe like seven or eight episodes of Batman the Animated Series. So. Really? Yeah, I no, never actually like bothered to see. I've, I've liked what I've seen. But yeah, I never really like charged through that one the way Should so many we make people. We that my a Patreon did. perk where we do every episode of Batman the Animated Series. Maybe that's an idea. Well, it wouldn't be so close to it. I just I think. Well, then they're they're, they're lost easy. interest over after a while. Oh no 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 no! You're gonna gain interest. <laughs> when that show was good, that show was great. And they did one flashback episode because Razzle Ghoul. I saw, I saw was so the flashback old. episode. Yeah, yeah, and there was one with Jonah Hex, and it was very clearly very similar to Wild Wild West. Maybe there was some overlap there. I don't know. It was one of those shows where I, I wanted to tune in, but every time I did, I kept on seeing like the same rerun every time. Uh, like the Which same team. one. Uh, I saw. Um, I saw the one with like the evil uh, ventriloquist dummy a couple of times. Oh, there was a few of those, but I, I think I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, where like a just like mild, meek, mild mannered guy had a, a Scarface. A, a, was that the the puppet? Yeah, the puppet had a scar in his face. Yeah, it was Scarface. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the puppet like kind of took over his Fun personality. Character. You can never build a whole movie around around uh, Scarface. I saw, another, I saw another one about like a, a vengeful um, Shirley Temple actress who looked young all her life, and like oh yeah, like, that was, she she went crazy. That was a late edition, um, and that was a character I think was created. For 
before the show. Wasn't yeah. bad though for for late edition, like late in the mm-hmm. series, and we're making up something new. Mm. They were pretty well. That she could be a decent okay. like Batman villain. I mean, I, I saw a lot. I saw. I, I liked the show. I didn't. Dis- yeah. I didn't tune out because of lack of interest. Just, but what I like mm. about this possibility I eventually is that lost interest. If you actually, you know what I'm saying right now? Tweet us if that's a Patreon thing that you might actually want to. Because we what we're looking for is we our old Patreon perk mm. uh, was uh, our our goal was if we hit 250 subscribers, we'd review all of Firefly. Mm. Well, we need a new goal. Mm. And we've been talking about a variety of things. And if you think doing every animated Batman would be something that might make you subscribe if you haven't already, mm. tweet us. Let us know. Maybe we can add that. Yeah. You know, it'd, be, it'd be down the line, but it's a neat idea. And I love the show. And also, I know that the show is sometimes very stupid. <laughs> you, ever, you ever get to the one about the giant farm animals? That was oh god, no, I didn't see that. one. That was one of the stupidest episodes of anything, and that was in Batman the Animated Series. So one, one of my favorites was uh, the Joker took over the fish market. Oh, that's based on the classic comic book. Story, <laughs> oh, is it? Okay, where the Joker made Joker fish, and he wanted to like copyright them or yeah, patent them, and they're pat- like, you can't patent a fish, and he's like. But they look like me now. So oh, I'm yeah. going to stalk the shit out of you. And this is patent clerk. I'm like, what did I do? <laughs> so fucking good. All right, yeah, let us know if you'd like that. That'd be fun. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's do one more letter. And then we'll one, one more letter. Okay, here is a letter from uh, Tomas. Okay. Tomas, who also calls himself, a.k.a. Stubble McShave. Hello, Stubble McShave. Hello, Tomas, a.k.a. Stubble McShave. Uh, hi, Beast and Mr. McCool. Okay. Uh, it's been a quarter of a century since 1995. I think that it's a great movie year, but it's never recognized that that when uh, people talk about great movie years. Here are some of the movies released that year. Twelve Monkeys, Seven, The Usual Suspects, Braveheart, Heat, Toy Story, Casino, GoldenEye, Apollo 13, Leaving Las Vegas, Get Shorty, Dead Men Walking, Rob Roy, and Dracula Dead and Loving It. Um, he says I'd love that, that you include Dracula Dead and Loving It. He also it. says that last one is a joke, but you know what? I'll let you have it. Yeah, um, fine. It's, it's not Mel Brooks' yeah. best, but it's, it's kind of funny. What are your favorite movies of 1995? Well, 1995 was um, I was good year. It was a good year. I was still in high school, and that's like right when I was becoming obsessed with movies. So I saw I've seen all the movies on your list. Um, Yeah, I've seen. I saw Dracula Dead and Loving It in theaters twice. I actually really enjoyed it. Um, But all right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, here's you're right. Actually, 95 is a good year. I'm just gonna scroll through like 95 uh, in Wikipedia. Goldeneye Um, is my favorite James Bond movie. It even had good movies in January. Here are some of the movies that came out. Uh, in January of 1995, Tales from the Crypt presents Demon Knight. Oh yeah, John Singleton's Higher Learning. Uh, really, no, exce- that, uh, that's okay. No, no, all right. I remember. I haven't seen it in a long ass time. Right. Maybe it's not as good as I remember. Uh, Murder in the First, which is arguably Kevin Bacon's best performance. Okay, that's really I, I, good actually. I haven't seen Murder in the First uh, before but... Sunrise. Oh yeah, before Sunrise. Yeah, so that's pretty good. Mm. That's very good. In the Mouth of Madness came out that year. That's one of yeah, that's one of our favorite horror good. movies. Um, um, Quick and the Dead came out I, that year. I, I, Shallow Grave, we got introduced to Danny Boyle that year. Oh, that's true. Shallow Grave's a pretty good one. Get yeah, Shorty, really I think. I don't know why Get Shorty, like, it had a lot of clout for a little while there. Mm. Some people even called it, like, the only worthwhile film of the 90s uh, for a <laughs> second there. But, I don't know about that. Um, Wayne Wang's Smoke came out that year. Um, I really Muriel's that Wedding came out that year. That's a wonderful oh, that movie. That is a good movie. Um, uh, clean, comma shaven. If you really like, you know, mm. your movie's sick and disturbing. Uh, here's a movie that gets overlooked a lot: Dolores Claiborne. One of the ninety seven, wasn't it? No, no not right. according uh, to Wikipedia. Uh, yeah, Taylor Hackford uh, mm. directed Kathy Bates, Jennifer Jason Lee. Um, one of the more muted mm. uh, Stephen King adaptations. Like it's not ghoulish or anything. It's, yeah. a, it's a drama and a murder mystery, but 
boy is the acting amazing in that movie. I love yeah, that movie. Be- because I was the age I was, a lot of these things were talked about a lot among yeah. my peer group. And 95 Ooh, was Tank really, Girl was 95. Tank Girl was 95. Yeah, it was. But yeah, this was about the age when a lot of us were getting into indie film, and thanks to the film landscape at the time, there was plenty to choose from. So yeah, we're a bunch of high school kids gathering together in large groups to watch a movie like Smoke, or <laughs> Living in Oblivion, or Devil oh, in a Blue Dress. Village of the Dead um, came out the same year as In the Mouth of Madness? Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize Carpenter that. made two in the same year. I didn't realize that. That's um, I, I'm trying to get my son to watch Babe. Uh, I've been <laughs> You're having trouble? Well, he doesn't like movies. Oh, uh, he's, right. he's just not into films that's, yet. They're just too, too, he's young. He's got short he's, he's only five. Yeah, he just turned five. So he's, you know, he's going to come around eventually. Maybe not. Maybe he won't mm. ever like movies. I'm fine with that. But um, I've been trying to get him to watch Babe, and he wouldn't do it. He's watched a few movies with me. He watched Chicken Run. Uh, the the mm. Ardman film with me recently, which is great. Uh, I love Chicken Run. It's so good. Uh, Tales from the Hood came out that year. That movie was wonderful. Yeah, um, a Little Princess. A Little Princess oh, is awesome. So damn good. Yeah, that was Alfonso Cuaron's first English language film, uh, and it's great. Mm-hmm. I think um, I, I like it better than a lot of his other movies. They get more acclaim. Like yeah. I'm, I'm not so fond of Children of Men, but I love A Little Princess. I think Little Princess is better than Children yeah. of uh, Men. Crumb came out that year. Gus Van Sant's To Die For is a really excellent movie. That's an amazing movie. Yeah, Ooh, yeah. Safe. Speaking of movies that are more prescient <laughs> oh, yeah. now, uh, Julianne Moore plays a woman who thinks that the whole world is toxic and starts retreating further yeah. and further. Uh, into what she sees as safety, and it's mm. really morbid and dark, yeah. and it's really fantastic. Um, Some other films. I'm trying to think. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite movie titles. Uh-huh. The movie itself is merely cute. Uh, the Englishman who went up a hill but came down a mountain. <laughs> oh God, I died of twee. It's yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a, a Hugh Grant plays like a surveyor who's here to just sort of make sure all the maps okay, are still stop. accurate. Hugh Grant. Plays a surveyor. Yeah. An English land surveyor. Yes. Who's in Ireland. Yes. To and measure he, a hill. Yes. And his whole thing oh, that's is. That's the drama. No, he's there to measure a mountain. And what he discovers is that it's like 10 feet too short to be a mountain. It's mm. technically a hill. And everyone who lives in this small town is like, what the Fuck! Like, he just they, downgraded our mountain. So they, they have, all have to, great pride in their local mountain. Yeah. yeah. So what they do is they keep him distracted and like refuse to let him leave the town, so well, that they, they can secretly and, yeah. build the mountain, like add another ten feet to the hill. Hugh Grant is in it. Columnia is in it. It's so. basically a, a a a mildly amusing remake of the classic film Local Hero, which if you've never seen Local Hero, well, local, local, local Hero is a classic. The Englishman yeah. who went up a hill but came down a mountain is not. It, it's. It's not. It, it's like cotton candy. It just like, sort of melts it's away. It's cute. Yeah. Like, you can watch it with your parents. Yeah. Like, it's fine. But, like, yeah, it's... it's a, Local Hero is a classic. Englishman who went up a hill but came down a mountain mm. is, like, this, like... It's... It's like a copy of a copy. It's, it's yeah. fine. <laughs> um, let's see. Mortal Kombat came out that year. You're right, it did. Came out in August. Desperado came out that year. That was a fucking awesome movie. I saw Desperado before I even knew what El Mariachi was. Me too. So it was, yeah, it's kind of kind of blindsided by that. I, one. I think El Mariachi is actually the better film, but like, yeah, that's still that's Wait, still good stuff. Desperado and From Dust Till Dawn came out in the same year. Or was From Dust Till Dawn the next year? I think it was the next year. Oh, okay. Um, Seven came out that year. Showgirls came out that year. <laughs> yeah, Showgirls. Devil in a Blue Dress. No, that's yeah. a great movie yeah, we're yeah, talking I, about. I, I mentioned. Uh, sh- show, yeah. The Bloom is off the rose on Showgirls. I remember you and I were hosting uh, Midnight Shows briefly mm. uh, at the oh, New yeah. Art Theater. Yeah. We, we hosted a couple of those. 
Uh, Hackers was our big one. That was our most successful as well. Um, and we decided, hey, you know, Showgirls, that's a fun one. It's a camp movie we we really love. First of all, we had the bad luck uh, of it opening, like playing the same night where it was like playing somewhere else. Yeah. So like, the audience was split, so it wasn't very successful. Also, we learned that night that we're kind of done with Showgirls. Mm. Like, the, the camp wave was already kind of receding people, at that people point. People just unironically like Showgirls now. It doesn't have mm. that, like, camp midnight movie thing. Do, do it. People, like, legit like, oh, yeah. enjoy the, I was, uh, the yeah. bad performances and the awful drama and the terrible screenplay and, yeah. the, and the, the misogyny that's just leaking out of that thing. Well, I, I think... They're maybe not accepting that at face value, yeah, but yes, I, I think that I, 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 I've seen I the movie declared to, one of the best movies of the nineties. I, I refuse to accept that people are are genuinely enjoying <laughs> the horror of Showgirls. Fair enough. Like they're, um, they're actually getting into like, no man, this is actually a serious drama about like the deep dark moral pit that is Las Vegas. Oh, Richard the Third came out in nineteen ninety five. That's one of my favorite. Oh, I love Richard the, 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 the Richard Long Crane. Yeah, Richard Long Crane. Oh, that movie's that amazing. Uh, but scanning over as mm. we have uh, shot the shit, uh, all the movies that came out in nineteen ninety five, and I'm sure I missed something. Uh, my pick for the best movie in nineteen ninety five is actually Charles Burnett's The Glass Shield. Oh yeah, yeah. We we watched this one recently. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I insisted because I love this movie. Mm. Um, it is a story about. Uh, the first black cop in an all-white, uh, in, intensely, institutionally mm-hmm. racist uh, Los Angeles police precinct. And uh, uh, Ice Cube plays a guy who gets picked up off the street for basically nothing and gets railroaded into uh, a murder trial. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, and it's about the intense moral complexity uh of this situation in which this black cop finds himself, in which he is surrounded by other cops who expect him to have their back because they're all cops, but he's also, um, you know, well, this whole situation is intensely fucked up. I cannot pitch you the Glass Shield while This is one of the reasons why the Glass Shield I don't think has uh, enough of a following is because it doesn't have a good elevator pitch. It's a uh, black cop finds himself in the middle of a conspiracy that he accidentally put in motion, uh, and Ice Cube is might be convicted for murder mm. unfairly, and that is not good enough to like sell how brilliantly conceived and yeah, constructed yeah. and acted this movie is. And I consider it one of the best films of the nineties. Really, really good. Um, yeah. Best film of the nineties. Uh, best, best film of nineteen ninety five. Crumb. Uh, you know, I've never t- seen it. Terry Zwegoff's documentary about yeah. R. Crumb uh, just really delves into the very particular uh, pay, uh, f- foibles and strange subconscious pathways of a very oddly written man. <laughs> um, I, I meant oddly written, like written from the inside. It's a documentary film. Mm. Yeah, it, it's not just sort of an interesting look at counterculture at a time when counterculture was really kind of important to the operational ethos of the world, mm. but also just a really wonderful uh, and very frank documentary about a certain kind of weirdly functional human being. Uh, R. Crumb is a fascinating guy, and the film really, I think, captures him. A uh, film that's really important to me uh, in terms of its politics is Dead Man Walking. Yep. Uh, that's uh, one of the best films about the death penalty ever made. Yep. Uh, another another great movie. S- something repeated in the glass. Uh, Sean Penn and Susan yeah. Sarandon are master glass uh, actors. Yeah, for sure, for yeah. sure. And uh, it is it very unabashedly anti death penalty. Yes, it is. You yeah. have to take a stance on that sort of thing. Yeah. 
I'm fine with that. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah, you're allowed to mm. have that sense. Anyway, um, so that is uh, we've got mail for this week. Hopefully, that answers your question. Mm. Um, yeah, you can email us uh, letters at critically acclaimed dot net, and we will answer your questions or uh, respond to your critiques or mm. whatever. Just read your letter. Uh, on our podcast. Thank you, everybody who wrote in. Sorry if we didn't get to your letter this week. We'll try next week. Um, and uh, yeah, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And uh, if you haven't already, uh, we have a Patreon you could sign up for if you want a ton of more original content from me and Whitney. Uh, Patreon.com slash Critically Acclaimed Network. We have a ton of exclusive shows. There's a Firefly podcast called Out of Gas. We're doing every single episode, one podcast per episode. We're watching every single episode of Star Trek in production order. Uh, we're doing, uh, we're reviewing every single film ever nominated for Best Picture. We're talking about all the best movies or <laughs> worst movies or just weird movies that aren't on Disney Plus and should be. We're doing commentary tracks, the whole nine yards. Uh, we're, we're actually going to change a few things on uh, the rewards in our Patreon uh, in the next month, but we think they're good changes, and mm. we think it's going to be able to get you more quality content uh, even faster. Yeah. So uh, stick around, especially for our top-tier patrons. There may be a couple of tweaks. Um, and, uh, yeah, am I forgetting anything? No, that's pretty much it. Okay, so listen, thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody, for listening, especially if you're a patron. We couldn't do this without you, and we wouldn't. Um, and uh, especially thank you everybody who wrote in. It's a really, really fun show, and I love doing it every single week. So thank you once again. We hope you're all staying uh, safe, sound, and sane. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney. <laughs>